Stay tuned for the Portland Five podcast, an exploration of Portland's theater community through the lens of its five iconic downtown venues. Art matters. Art brings joy, inspires the mind, and unites communities. Art changes lives. Did you know that Portland is home to the fifth largest performing arts center in the U.S.? Also, the five venues under that umbrella draw over a million patrons to downtown Portland's cultural district every year. Portland Five is a national leader in keeping art and culture thriving. So what's in store for us this season? Far-right terror organizations, white nationalist organizations, are the new version of the Ku Klux Klan. They don't like to be positioned that way. And they like the present president, and the present president likes the fact that they like him. There's no joy in saying that, but by any objective analysis, it's a fact. It's a definitive fact. You probably guessed that was Dan Rather, who's headed for Portland soon as part of Portland Five Presents. And as you'll hear later in the podcast, he had some astute observations about Portland's clash between Antifa and right-wing demonstrators. Welcome to the Portland Five podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Webb, co-founder of Portland Radio Project. Glad to have you with us today. Dan Rather and much more coming up not only in the podcast but also in Portland Five Presents. The season ahead, and here to tell us more, is Heather Wilton, Director of Programming and Booking at Portland Five. Thanks for being here, Heather. Thanks for having me. Hey, what's the difference, really, between Portland Five Centers for the Arts and Portland Five Presents? Well, Portland Five Centers for the Arts consists of the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall, the Keller Auditorium, the Newmark Theater, the Winningstad Theater, and Brunish Theater. And we, as Portland Five Centers for the Arts, manage those theaters. Now, Portland Five Presents falls under the umbrella of Portland Five Centers for the Arts, and that section brings in for in-house presenting. You're actually programming. We are programming. The theaters. We are. And why? I know that you have a lot of programming that's offered to you from, you know, international sources. Why program your own? Well, we want Portland Five Centers for the Arts to be Portland's venues. And we did see that some communities in Portland weren't coming down to our venues, and we felt that they weren't being served. And so we saw an opportunity to bring in shows that would serve all communities of Portland. Awesome. I think that one of the greatest examples of that in the season ahead is Cafe Tacuba. Did I say that right? You did. Cafe Tacuba. We're very excited to have them coming in. Now, what are they like? They are a Mexican rock band, and they are fun and high energy. Sounds good, but I believe they sing and speak in Spanish. They do. It is a show all in Spanish. Okay. Now, are there going to be any subtitles or anything of that nature? Absolutely not. (laughs) So we're going to get You're just going to go and have fun. Of what it's like to hear music and conversation in a language that, you know, non-Spanish speakers, for example, don't understand. Okay. Tell us about Flor de Loache. Wait. Did I say it? Flor de Toloache. Flor de Toloache. They Thank are you. an amazing mariachi band from Brooklyn, New York. They are all female, and they are also a rockin' band. And they won a Latin Grammy? They did, yeah. They're just extremely accomplished. Yo no he perdido la esperanza de que un día tú me quieras si algún día me quieras. Ooh, that is catchy. Flor de Tolawache. Tell us what that means. 
It is a Mexican flower known as a love potion. (laughs) So they'll cast a spell on us, no doubt. And then Martha Redbone is coming? We do. We have Martha Redbone coming in the winter, and she is an amazing storytelling singer-songwriter. We're thrilled to have her in the Winningstead Theater. I see that she grew up in Kentucky's Appalachian Mountains. She did. Her father is African-American, and her mother is Cherokee, and she really pulls from both identities in her storytelling. Mm-hmm. Love that. Martha Redbone is coming. And then you have uh, emphasis on women also in the National Geographic series. I do. We're really excited for our Nat Geo series this season. Every lecture features women in adventure and science. And we have some just great, great speakers coming up with that. And Trey McLaughlin, The Sounds of Zamar coming up this season as well. Anything else uh, you're excited about? Well, um, going back to the Nat Geo we have a woman who is a Portlander, and her name is Kakani Kacha, and well she is done. a bioengineer. <laughs> well so we're done. thrilled to have a local person with us. Kakani Kacha, and she was an Olympic skater, but also, you know, kind of applies the beauty and the fluid nature of dance to what she's observing in the ocean. Yes. Yeah. She's a little bit of a high achiever. (laughs) I would think so. Okay, great. And so Trey McLaughlin, Sounds of Zamar, is coming right up. And it's also coming to Portland as part of the series. We will be talking with Trey right after this. Thanks, Heather. Thank you. Stick around for Trey McLaughlin. We'll be right back. Support comes from Portland Five, which provides its five iconic downtown theaters to local and national arts, music, dance, and education performances. For more, visit portlandfive.com. With their soul-stirring arrangements of contemporary gospel musical theater and original compositions, Trey McLaughlin, the sounds of Zamar are bringing their rich harmonies to Portland as part of Portland Five Presents. And Trey McLaughlin joins us now from Augusta, Georgia. How are you, Trey? All is well. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for being here. I believe you called it the illustrious community of Augusta. (laughs) Yes, I did. Isn't that where you grew up? Yeah, actually, born and raised. Excellent. And so just sticking around uh, the old homestead right now, I would normally ask you how all this got started, but it seems to me like you've always been singing. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) since I was about four. Was that a family thing or a school thing or a church thing? Um, Not really. My, uh, My mother sings, but Nobody else in my family is really musical, so I'm kind of random. Really? Yeah, but I grew up seeing it, I mean, in church, so that was kind of where I got my start. There you go. Well, who were the gospel singers who influenced you then? Definitely Kirk Franklin made a big impact on me with his debut album, but also um, the Mississippi Mass Choir, Milton Brunson, um, a lot of the old school gospel artists had a big uh, impact on me. Neat. 
Now, I know that you were an outstanding high school student and performer and then an award-winning performer as well in college, and then you went on to teach music. So I'm curious if you had an inspirational teacher along the way. I've had several really good music teachers. Um, Linwood Holmes, uh, who is my goddad, actually, is probably my first music teacher here. Um, and then I had uh, James Dunaway at Davidson. But the most impactful one was probably um, a lady by the name of Evelyn Ellis, who was the founder of a teen choral group that I joined um, my ninth grade year. And she kind of had the biggest impact on shaping me into the teacher that I am today. And what was it that she did that influenced you? Because, uh, you know, becoming a teacher yourself, that there must be some magic that you do with your students to inspire them. I think she kind of, um, I think more than giving me an example in specific ways of instruction, I think it was more of what she was able to create in her students. So um, her ability to pull creativity out of me, um, encourage it, and then give me kind of the free reign to grow as a student made me want to do that for other students. She definitely had a big hand in encouraging me to explore um, my composing ability and also my methodology of teaching and developing it. So. Um, yeah, that's pretty much how she kind of got me into this. And is that the approach you take as well with your students? Definitely. Yeah. I know you've directed a lot of choirs and productions, but was founding Trey McLaughlin and the Sounds of Zamar the most fun ever? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. I think that it, it was kind of, um impromptu the way it happened i hadn't really planned to start a group um but we kind of ended up materializing um out of a need for uh what we do and from there it kind of just the rest is history one of your trademarks at the show that i i really like is covering some musical theater tunes now where did that come from um i've always been real dramatic always even as a child um, my mom is kind of artsy, so she would watch a lot of musicals and uh, musical movies. Um, I kind of grew up hearing a lot of different things in my house. So um, I don't know. I've always lent myself to being dramatic. Even when I would sing along with my favorite television shows, I was I was just a drama king. (laughs) I love it. So what are some of the musical covers that we should expect to hear? Um, We're going to do some stuff from Dear Evan Hansen, from Hamilton, The Lion King, and uh, possibly from The Greatest Showman. Wow, that's quite a lineup. Do you object to people singing along? No, (laughs) no. I want them to jump in. I want it to be an interactive singing experience. Okay, look out, because we're not going to let you down in Portland. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Hey, tell us about the collaboration with the Grammy winner, Vashon Mitchell. What was that like? That was amazing. And actually, um, one of my members entered us into a competition. I didn't even know she had done this until we won. Um, But uh, he had a competition for the best arrangement of a song called Chasing After You. 
And she entered us in that competition. She sent in a video of us singing it and we actually won. And so he came down here to Augusta and did a concert with us. And we got to perform that song and a couple of others with him and just kind of meet and greet. And um, we ended up being on that project with him. So they actually published us on the triumphant project with him. So if you go buy that CD, DVD set, you'll see our name on the back of it, which was just unreal to be included on such a, a big project. And then at the time, he was really, really big because he had um, just come out with a hit single called Nobody Greater and a few others. So he definitely was climbing the charts very quickly. So it was just an honor for us to be able to um, do that with him. Well, it is a pleasure to have you with us today, and we hope that you enjoy your trip to Portland. Have you ever been here before? I have not, so I'm excited. I've never been to Oregon. Great. Well, we're looking forward to it. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, Trey. No problem. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. You can catch Trey McLaughlin and The Sounds of Zamar Sunday, October 6th, 7.30 p.m. at the Newmark Theater, and tickets are on sale now at portlandvibe.com. Coming up, venerated journalist Dan Rather has some thoughts about the sometimes violent political demonstrations in Portland. Does he have any advice for Mayor Wheeler? Stay tuned. Support comes from Portland Five, which provides its five iconic downtown theaters to local and national arts, music, dance, and education performances. For more, visit portlandfive.com. After more than 60 years chronicling our world and nation, few can match the authority, experience, and perspective that Dan Rather brings to almost any subject. Politics, the media, our country's most pressing issues. Covering the world's biggest news stories over six-plus decades, Mr. Rather has in recent years established a national media company, News and & Guts, and he continues to share insight and commentary in popular news media. He's coming to the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in Portland to talk about his essays entitled What Unites Us? Reflections on Patriotism. And joining us by phone from his office in New York, we welcome venerated journalist Dan Rather to the Portland Five podcast. Thank you for being with us, Dan. Well, Rebecca, it's a delight to be with you, and I look forward to my appearance for Portland Five. We look forward to meeting you in person. It'll be an honor. Of course, we want to hear what you have to say about prospects for uniting the country. But before we get to current events, with your permission, I'd like to just review your incredible career. Well, I wouldn't describe it as incredible. Let's face it. Uh, you know, I dreamed of being a, a reporter when I was a child. In those days, it was dreaming of being a newspaper person and then later a radio person. But nonetheless, I've been very lucky and mightily blessed. I, it's hardly been incredible, but it's been a, a great ride. And I'm happy to say that uh, with continued good luck and God's grace, uh, I'm still at it. You did report in the 50s for radio and newspaper. Your dream essentially came true. And in the 60s, you covered the first televised war for CBS, brought images from the Vietnam battlefield right into our living rooms. I remember. What are your strongest memories of Vietnam? Well, my strongest memories are of how savage, indescribably savage war is, and particularly uh it's underreported, including with my own reporting, uh, that those who suffer most are old people, women, and children. 
for those who had to fight it on both sides, uh, Vietnam was a green jungle hell. And uh, one sees things in war that I, I wouldn't say haunt you for the rest of your life, but something pretty close to that. But to witness war or to engage in war, actually, is an experience that one can never fully describe. And for people who have not seen intense combat, people who have never actually witnessed it, it's very difficult to convey how truly savage it is. Absolutely insane. I'm curious if there were some limits on what CBS was allowed to broadcast in terms of casualties. And and did CBS negotiate with the U.S. Defense Department? No. This was a different era. Things are different now, I'm sorry to say. But during the Vietnam era, and particularly during the time I was there, I spent almost a year there, pretty close to a year, 1965-1966. The war was uh, escalating, getting much bigger during that period. But the U.S. military asked for nothing in the way of censorship or holding things back, with one or two exceptions, which I'll note in a moment, uh, that basically to be a war correspondent for CBS News or for that matter any other news organization during that time meant that you were basically in the hitchhiking business. We were allowed to go any place we could get. The military, when they could and they most often could, uh, would allow you to hitchhike on a helicopter or on a military convoy or actually go out on patrol, even long-range patrol with troops. There were, there were no restrictions on the press during that day. CBS News never negotiated with the military about anything about what we would cover or what we couldn't cover. Uh, there were no more than half a dozen. I only vividly remember two times when there was a request. For example, the commander in a battle zone up near Kuchi, uh, which is in the northern part of the country up in what was called I-Corps, that we were on top of something, an operation that was supposed to be secret. And he asked in the field if uh, I could delay sending our report of that combat back in order to prevail the secrecy over the those they were attacking. Uh, and I agreed to that, but that was a request. I was free to reject that request. So with those very, very few exceptions, there was no censorship. And so far as I know that the government nor the uh, military commanders ever made a request to CBS News. And with the very few exceptions I noted, uh, none were ever made of me. Censorship was never a problem during the Vietnam War. Now, as White House correspondent in the 70s, you accompanied President Richard Nixon to China and then reported on Watergate and his impeachment and resignation. I'm curious what we learned from Watergate that may pertain to the present day conversation about impeachment. Well, there's a long list of things that we learned. Uh, among those uh, is one important thing with what unites us. You know, when I speak in Portland uh, later this year, I intend to speak about the necessity that we think of shared values, how we can keep ourselves united enough to remain constitutional republic based on the principles of freedom and democracy. But one of the things we learned out of Watergate is that no person should be above the law. And to enforce that core belief uh, of Americans, and it has been through our history that you know, we've made our mistakes, but the core belief that no person is above the law, to enforce that, you need the, our internal system of checks and balances to work. The courts have a role. 
the Congress, the legislative branch has a role, the press has a role. Uh, those are among the lessons that we learn. Among the other lessons are that you do need a deep digging investigative portion of the press to take on power. The cliche is speak truth to power, but it's also reveal truth to the population. So those are among the lessons we learn. So I'm trying to figure out if you, based on that, think that we should proceed an impeachment investigation of Donald Trump. Well, obviously, this is a decision which is finally in the hands of the Congress. As you know, the House has the power to impeach. That doesn't mean remove the president. Basically, it's like indicting a president. And then the Senate has the trial. Now, your question to me, which I don't want to duck, is, you know, do I think that we should impeach? I am not privy to all the information that is necessary in my judgment uh, to decide whether we impeach or not. But I certainly do think that more, a great deal more investigation needs to be done to determine whether the House should have an actual vote on impeachment. I've clearly stated that there's a lot we do not know. A lot of what we do not know is because the executive branch, headed by the president, seeks to keep it secret such things as the president's tax returns, which he is, has fought and is fighting so hard to keep from being revealed. We need the information. We need investigations to continue, both those by branches of the government and by the press, and get the facts in front of the public. In the end, whether there is to be an impeachment vote of the House or not, followed by a trial in the Senate, will depend on American public opinion. And as of this moment, American public opinion is pretty much divided on the question of impeachment. But as was the case in Watergate, for a long time, public opinion was not in favor of impeachment. But as additional facts kept coming out during that period, then the majority of public opinion moved uh, for impeachment. And that's when the House began to move on it, resulting in President Nixon's resignation. Right now, we're in a situation where, as I say, the majority public opinion is fairly evenly split. We need more information. There's a lot of information that is being kept secret that needs to come out. And on, on that balance, we'll determine whether we have impeachment or not. You know, I do think that there has been a movement in the direction of impeachment. I find a lot of people who say, well, you know, it just isn't going to happen. I'm not saying it is going to happen. I am saying that it's way too early to say it's not going to happen. We have to see whether these efforts to bring into public view what is now secret are successful or not. As you point out, we are so divided as a society, almost evenly in many cases. And so it will be great to hear more about what you think unites us, which, of course, is the subject of your talk at the Schnitzer Concert Hall in Portland next month. After all the recent shootings... Uh, El Paso, Dayton, already more this year than in all of 2018. What is it, in a nutshell, that gives you hope? What gives me hope is that in public opinion poll after public opinion poll, something on the order of 90% of Americans think we need to have some serious legislation that will curb some of the spread of weaponry in the hands of the wrong people such as more background checks and real background checks and fairly tight background checks, which you do not have at the moment because uh, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and with help from the president are blocking legislation passed by the House. But, you know, and there's 
a good deal. I've forgotten the figure, but I, something on the order of 65 to 75% of people prefer a ban on military-style fully automatic weapons and extended magazines for them. So what gives me hope is that people have come around and that I'm hopeful that the House will eventually listen enough to public opinion. The House has already passed some legislation, but that the House and the Senate will listen to public opinion. But let's see clearly, you asked me to be brief, and I'm sorry I'm not as brief on this as should be, but it's obviously a complicated but important subject, that the reason we haven't had at least some movement on the most obvious things that we need to do in terms of guns is, quite frankly, money. That the National Rifle Association and the manufacturers of weapons and ammunition have poured money into election campaigns for many decades. And the reason you have a situation now where public opinion has moved heavily toward at least some of the more obvious gun control measures and that the Congress has not dealt with them is a matter of money. Money talks in politics. Jesse Unruh, the late California political leader, once said, money is the mother's milk of politics. And money, in this case, is the mother's milk of resistance to any kind of gun control measures. As you know, Portland has become a real flashpoint between anti-fascist and white supremacist demonstrators clashing violently and fairly occasionally on our streets. Do you have any advice for our local to decelerate that? Well, you know, one of the things I've learned uh, over a long career in journalism is try not to give anybody advice, uh, much, <laughs> less, much, much less uh, local officials. But I will say, because I do think it's something that unites us in this country, that, as you mentioned earlier, we have a lot of divisions along political and sometimes ideological lines. But some of these organizations, and I'm not dealing in false equivalency here, far-right terror organizations, white nationalist organizations, are the new version of the Ku Klux Klan. They don't like to be positioned that way. And they like the present president, and the present president likes the fact that they like him. There's no joy in saying that. But by any objective analysis, it's a fact. It's a definitive fact. So this threat of white nationalism from the right is to be equated with the many years we went through with the threat to our unity that the Ku Klux Klan posed. As I say, these white nationalist terror organizations are the new Ku Klux Klan. They don't wear the old-style white hoods, but it's the same. it comes from the same root. Now, there are organizations, terror organizations on the left, and I have no more respect for them than I do those on the right. And we're beginning to recognize uh, this threat. But, you know, back in the 1960s, and some of the older residents in Portland and Oregon will recall this, there was a black nationalist movement, some portions of which were committed to violence. And the country as a whole got very concerned about that. And there was a, an enormous crackdown on it. Here now in the second decade of the 21st century, where we're ending the, the end of this decade, I do think that public opinion is forming around some unity in the country that says, look, we have our differences and we have, we have continuing race problems and race divisions, for example. But we have to put as close to an end as we possibly can to the new Ku Klux Klan, the far right white nationalists and at the same time, deal with the threat of extremists on the left. 
Dan, your media company, News and Guts, is doing projects in several realms. So I want to ask you a couple of quick questions about those before we go. First of all, science, would you tell us your observations and worries about climate change? Well, first of all, climate change is a scientific fact. You know, it's a definitive fact. One can argue about what is causing climate change. I do uh, my own personal opinion, uh, my opinion clearly labeled, is that humans contribute to climate change. But there, climate change in and of itself is a fact. And having the top leadership of the country basically deny that is extremely dangerous for us. You know, we as a country, as the people, we Americans, have long had a real dedication to science. And this has made us a world leader in science. We're now in an anti-science period in which the top leadership of the country cuts back on scientific research at the very time we need more scientific research. I do think that we're in a race against time with climate change. Whether you subscribe to the idea that it's 10 years or 20 years, we have a fairly near timeline to deal with this. We're not dealing with it. And inside that are not dealing with it is overall, we're in danger of losing our lead as world leaders in science when we have a a government that is basically anti-science. I worry about it a great deal. And on the technology front, you seem to be keeping up. I saw you on Facebook Live the other day. You know, I try hard to keep up. Uh, You know, I have a lot of faults and I've made a lot of mistakes, let's face it. But, you know, I I have a passion for covering news. And uh, you can't be dedicated to covering news these days without trying your very best to understand technology and I do try to keep up with it, but some days I find myself falling uh, farther and farther behind. Uh, for example, today I've been frustrated with my iPhone on about three or four occasions and saying some <laughs> version of, damn this gadget, you know. <laughs> hey, give us a secret before you go, would you? For those of us who want to stay healthy, fit, and intellectually curious into later life, are there routines that you incorporate in your life? Or what is your secret anyway, Dan? Well, you know, again, I really don't have any advice for anybody because in many ways, I'm kind of a rolling wreck. I'm 87 years old. I'll be 88 on October 31st. And, you know, I have had to make adjustments to age. I hate to say that. But, you know, part of what keeps me going is the obvious things, family and friends. But also, you know, I love this work. I just have a deep and abiding passion for the work. So, yes, you know, I do take long walks. I don't run anymore. Uh, It's said to be too hard on the joints. But, you know, I exercise. uh, I try to keep my weight in control. But I don't think there's any secret, but I do say to myself every morning when I wake up, the first thing I do is thank God for taking me through the night and giving me another day. And then my prayer is, uh, you know, help me to be better today than I was yesterday. But part of what keeps me going and intellectually curious is that I have had my health. And again, in some ways, I've been very lucky and blessed with that. It isn't something I've done uh, or not done. Uh, It's just in the genes. But I do think that physical health has a great deal to do with mental health. This is not an original or profound idea. Uh, But staying curious, staying interested, wanting to keep learning, and also have a navigational star, a polar star out there that you want to keep moving toward. 
uh, knowing that you'll never reach it. But, you know, my polar star professionally has always been, you know, I dreamed of being, I wanted to be, I still want to be a great reporter. Not just a good one, but a great reporter. I've never reached that, and I will never reach that polar star, in my opinion, as, you know, the shadows begin to darken a little around me. But in answer to what keeps me going, one of the things that keeps me going is that polar star out there saying, well, just keep going, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Don't waver, don't quit. Just keep moving toward your polar star. Mm -hmm. You're doing it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dan. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk with us today, and we look forward to your visit in Portland. Rebecca, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Tickets are now on sale for An Evening with Dan Rather at portland5.com. He'll be here September 19th, 7.30 p.m., and we have a blog post on the website, prp.fm. A direct link to each of the upcoming events mentioned in this podcast will be in the blog post. I'm Rebecca Webb. Thanks for joining us for the Portland 5 podcast. See you next time.